and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Asbeth, our daf of the day, Masachet Bavakama, daf Ayin Zion, page 77. So this is an unusual daf. If anybody's looking at the daf uh, in the classic Vilna Shas appearance, you'll see that Ahmed Alf, I mean, anywhere you look, really, you'll see that Ahmed Alf is very, very tiny. If you look in the classic Vilna Shas, you'll see why Ahmed Alf is very, very tiny. Namely, there's a tremendous amount of commentary around the little piece of Gemara, and that tremendous commentary is Tosfot. The Balea Tosfot had a lot to say on this daf. So we're going to kind of try to abridge it. What's going on on the daf, uh, on, the, on this Ahmed, rather, and then your Dana, you'll take Ahmed Bet, which reads like, you know, the usual Gemara that it is. So here we've got a new, it's a new topic or a new subtopic, right? We're talking about the meat of a red heifer. Now the red heifer is a complicated case to begin with, a paradoxical case to begin with. You'll find the origin, the origins of it in Parshat Chukat, right, in the Torah, in Bamidbar, where it talks about, and the the ashes of the red heifer, which is slaughtered in a particular way, they make the, they purify those who are um, impure from tumat mate, from the impurity of a dead body. But the person who does the process of purification becomes impure in the process. So here we say, para mitame tumat ochlin, that meat of the red heifer itself, in fact, can become impure, right? It's possible for it to become ritually impure, as other foods can be. And the reason it can, right, the, oh, let me take one more step, sorry. You're not allowed to get benefit from that meat, right? But there was a brief time in the whole process of the paraduma where it was considered fit for, for eating, and therefore it is forevermore afterwards still able to become tummy. Okay, this is already a complicated case because the Parajuma to begin with is a complicated case. And this is just a snippet of all of that, which is really the what I left off because it's on the previous staff is that this is all attributed another case of Rabbi Shimon. So let's just see what happens in the commentaries, right? So we have a statement here and I'm reading a synopsis, I'm deriving from a synopsis that the Baletosot quote um, uh, a Rashi from Masachet Chulin. Chulin, the focus of Chulin is really on, you know, exactly meat, you know, and kosher, kosher meat in general. And it says the meat of the red heifer is impure in and of itself, and that's from the Torah, meaning we know that from Sefer Bamidbar, from the Book of Numbers, um, chapter 19. Whereas even if it doesn't come in contact with it, with impurity, it, it will still be impure. So then the question is, and this is where the Balitos will get all excited, right? But if it doesn't, if it can be, if it's impure without coming in contact with something that is a specific impurity for food, then why does it matter that it could contract the impurity of food since it's already impure? It's impure because of its essence, the way it becomes uh, the paradzuma. So Rashi there talks about the ritual impurity, this tuma that can be contracted by food if it's larger than a kibetza. Now, we talked about this, I don't know how long ago. I want to say Masachet Shabbat. It was a really long time ago that we had a discussion about the way food can become tuma. It has to, the kibetza is a small amount. It's bigger than a kazayat, the olive amount. It's the egg amount, right? And 
So it gives, so there's an example that's brought, you know, if you have that meat from the red heifer and it's smaller than a kibetza, if then that's then this measure of an egg, and you wrap it in dough that is also less than a kibetza, now the two of them together will be more than the kibetza, right? This egg measurement. So now, if that red heifer meat is considered food, then it joins together with the dough to make the minimum amount, right? And then you have, you know, the impurity of food. But if the red heifer meat is not considered food because it was never really eligible to be eaten because very, very quickly it becomes, I mean, it was eligible to be eaten for a very short time, but almost immediately it becomes, um, you know, prohibited from benefit. Well, then maybe it doesn't have the status of food, in which case, you never, they don't join, meaning the dough and the meat don't join, and you never get to the amount of the the amount together that would be the amount that would make it impure. So now you say, well, it it maybe theoretically could have gotten too much ochlin, this impurity of food, but it didn't because it wasn't enough. The the amounts included here are not enough. Now, that is like a very brief synopsis and perhaps unsatisfying, given just how many words are used by the Balei Tosfot on the daf, it's, it's important, meaning they're going through a really complicated case. But I would say also, and I think maybe we should you know, remember this, when we get to Chulin, Chulin is really towards the end of the whole Shas, of, of learning daf Yomi. But we're going to see this again. So I think we have to keep in mind that part of what Tosfos does, what it likes to do is exactly this, right? It finds other, the, the Tosfos believes that sort of the Gemara is uniform. And so if something says something one place, it needs to line up with where we see reference to it in another place. So that's why it'll go crazy sort of in this kind of scenario and spend a lot of time trying to figure this out. Although I always like to say, you know, have the Gemara, the, you know, have the Tosfot learn to do that, which is, of course, the Gemara itself, where the Amorayim bring in all these other cases. But yes, this is dramatic, even for the Balea Tosfot. All right, I'm going to move on. And yesterday, and you talked about this Machlokas between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, with their understanding of Rabbi Shimon's Halakha and the Mishnah, that somebody steals and slaughters a, a, an offering for which the owner is responsible for you know, pays a four, five, or five, five-fold penalty. And so the Gemara now wants to understand why does everybody reject each other's, why does, you know, Rabbi Yochanan hold the way he does? Why does Rish Lakish hold the way he does? Bishlama Rabbi Yochanan, lo amarka Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. Now we can understand why Rabbi Yochanan does not hold like Rish Lakish. Because Rabbi Yochanan wants to interpret Rabbi Shimon's ruling in the Mishnah as applying even to an unblemished, uh, into an unblemished offering. Ella, Rish Lakish, my time Rabbi Yochanan. So they sort of accept why Rabbi Yochanan doesn't accept Rish Lakish. But the question becomes, why doesn't Rish Lakish hold like Rabbi Yochanan? Amar laughs, so Rish Lakish would say, right? When the Torah says, remember in Shemot chapter 21, verse 37, that he's going to pay a fourfold or fivefold payment if he slaughters or sells it. Whenever the stolen animal is subject to a law of sale, it is also subject to the law of slaughter. In other words, wherever the thief would be high up to pay a fourfold or fivefold, you know, fine for selling the stolen animal, he's also 
has the same penalty uh, for um, for slaughtering it. But whatever it's not subject to the sub, subject to the law of sale, uh, it's not subject to the law of slaughter. And in the case of these unblemished offerings, since if somebody sells an unblemished offering, it actually is not a sale, right? Unblemished kudshim can't be deconsecrated. You can't make them kulim. You can't actually sell them. So therefore, they also can't, there can't be any penalty if you were to slaughter them. So it actually, that kind of makes sense. But they, right, each one is consistent with their opinion elsewhere. And so what they're going to do from here is, is they're obviously going to bring in other, uh, you know, another example to show how they're consistent, right? We said, if a thief sells a trefa, what would the law be according to Rabbi Shimon? Rabbi Yochanan Omer, right? So here we're talking about, um, remember, Rabbi Shimon exempts a thief who stole and slaughtered a trefa from the fourfold or fivefold payment because it's, um, and that we saw in our Mishnah on, on, on 70A, okay? So Rabbi Yochanan Omer, Chayev, he would say he's actually Chayev uh, to make that fourfold or fivefold payment. But Rish Lakish Amar Pator, Rish Lakish would say that Rabbi Shimon would say you're Pator. Rabbi Yochanan Amar Chayab, Rabbi Yochanan says he's Chayab, Afal Gab because even though a trefa is not subject to the law of slaughter, right, you can't shuck the trefa, according to Rabbi Shimon, but it still could be sold. But Rish Lakish Amar Pator, Rish Lakish says, no, he's Pator, even if he um, sells it, because since it's not subject to the law of slaughter, it cannot be subject to the sale of, uh, it can't be subject to the law of sale. So in other words, this statement basically says that it was essentially um, uh, consistent, uh, exact, you know, it was also consistent with exactly, um, uh, you know, what uh, it, it was consistent with, with this, uh, uh, you know, with this statement before, uh, just with a different case. Now, from here, they're going to go on that Rish Luck going to, uh, sorry, Rabbi Yochanan is going to challenge Reish Lakish with the Brisa. Reish Lakish is going to come and deflect that. I'm not going uh, to, well, I guess I'll read a, a little bit more here, right? Itve Rabbi Yochanan, the Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. So Rabbi Yochanan challenges Reish Lakish and brings the following Brisa. Let's say somebody steals an animal that is Kilayim. So this would be like somebody mates like a, a goat and a sheep together and a ewe together. So you're not allowed to crossbreed uh, two species. That's not something that is allowed. Okay. So let's say he did that. Um, uh, uh, so it goes on and says, trefa, right? So you steal and slaughter it. Trefa umachra, or you have a trefa and you sell it. You pay the fourfold or fivefold payment. My love, Rabbi Shimoni. Now, is that not, is, is not this brisa reflecting the view of Rabbi Shema, right? Because the fact that the Bryce describes the fourfold or fivefold payment to somebody who sells a stolen trefa, but not to one who slaughters the stolen trefa, shows that it must be authored by Rabbi Shimon who holds that a thief is not liable for the fourfold or fivefold payment for a slaughter for something that is not uh, that you can't actually slaughter. So Alma Afalgab, the Lesley Betvicha Itebimachira, right? So it seems 
even though a trafe is not subject to the law of slaughter, according to Rabbi Shimon, it is slaughtered. It is subject to the slaughter of sale. Rish Lakish says, okay, I can answer you back. Amrle, lo. He says, no, Rabbanan. He says, maybe this Bryce is actually just the opinion of the rabbis who say that a trefa can be subject to the laws of slaughter as well. And Rabbi Shimon still holds that trefa is not subject to the laws of slaughter, so it's not subject to the laws of sales either, right? He says, like, maybe this is just the opinion of the rabbis. E Rabbanan. So the Gemara says, okay, if this was Bryce, it was really the important, the opinion of the rabbis, right? Why does it specify that it's only a forefather of five full payment for the sale of a trefa? Trefa of a mechira, then is the trefa subject only to the laws of sale, but not to the laws of slaughter? So he goes on and what does he say? The Elamai Rabbi Shimon. So what then do you say? That the Brisa really reflects, okay, the opinion of Rabbi Shimon. Why? So basically saying, why would you still be, you know, you have this similar issue with the Bryce's case of a hybrid, um, right? Of this key lion animal, this crossbred, um, this crossbred animal here, right? Why does the Bryce say that you do a fourfold or fivefold payment only for the slaughter of a key lion, right? Because we know that key lion um, is, is subject only to the laws, is because basically, is then is that saying that the kilayim is only subject to the laws of slaughter and not to the laws of sale? Rather, if we say the b'risa reflects the opinion of Rabbi Shimon, right? And we say the Tana taught the law only respect to slaughter, the same would also apply to the sale of kilayim. So you could say this, this is according to the rabbis also. Tana Mechira, the Tana taught the laws of Trefa with respect to sale and meant to say, and he also wanted to say, this is the law of uh, this, the law of slaughter as well. In other words, Rach Lakish is basically saying, okay, the Brysa just sort of talked about one thing, but it doesn't mean that the other thing couldn't be true according to Rabbi Shimon or according to the rabbis. Now, I'm not sure that that's a great answer, but that's what he says here. So the Gemara rejects this, right? For Rabbi Yochanan Amar Lach, Rabbi Yochanan would say to you, Hi, Mai, what kind of argument is this? Rabbi Shimon. If you say the Brisa is the opinion of Rabbi Shimon, it's understandable, right? Then we would understand why the Brisa says the thief is only Chayav with the slaughter of Kilayim, even though it would apply also to the sale. But since the Tana taught that the thief is also Chayav when it comes to a trefa in only one case, so then it would seem also that the thief is only chayev in the case of chilayim to one case as well. But if you want to say that the b'risa is the view of the rabbis who would say that the fourfold or fivefold payment would apply to both the slaughter or sale of chilayim or trefa, so let the Tana teach both of them. Right. In other words, they're saying that it doesn't make the formulation of this price makes no sense if you say it's Rabbi Shimon or you'd say it's Rabbanan, according to Rish Lakish. And the Gemara basically says, Kasha, yep, we can't explain how Rish Lakish could actually explain this. And it seems to be that maybe, you know, uh, his understanding of Rabbi Shimon actually is problematic. So I, I just thought it was an interesting, you know, sort of back and forth with him and Rabbi Yochanan where essentially it comes to the conclusion, it, there is a difficulty with understanding. It's going to go on from there and talk about this machlokas a little bit more, but Rabbi Yochanan certainly seems to land 
to sort of have the upper hand with the argument with Rachel Luckish here. I just think it's nice that they, they play it all out for us. The Gamar always loves to play it all out. There's no shutting down <laughs> somebody's opinion ever. But it, but it's helpful, right? Like, we don't have to do that work. We just have to read and keep track. Yes, yes, yes. That is for sure true. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about the DAP and our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm-hmm.